Good to see everybody here. Thank you so much. Uh, our great campus pastor and our spiritual life leader, our associate vice president of spiritual life, Josh Edmond, just does a tremendous job on this campus of leading us. Is this, this is year three. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. So good to see everybody here for church on Sunday morning. Look at this. Uh, you look great. Saw a few hats in church and realized those were fathers, not students, that are wearing the hats. But that's good. That's good. You can wear that hat. I like hats. Um, and uh, I'm just glad you felt comfortable this weekend. I, it was our joy. You know, there's a lot of preparation goes into this because we're, we're driven by a spirit of hospitality uh, here at the university. We want, whether you're an online student in a course or whether you're a student seated in a classroom here, we want hospitality uh, to reign. And I hope moms and dads and grandparents and aunts and uncles and all the other siblings um, that were um, either forced to get here. And I always joked yesterday, I asked how many siblings, there. I see so many siblings here helping their older sibling move into the room. It's really special. Until I learned about six years ago, they were helping them move into this room because they wanted to jet home and move into their room. <laughs> so that's why they were filled with all that energy, all that energy. Hey, before we turn our hearts to John chapter 13 today, I have a special guest here today, and I want her to come up here uh, with me. Uh, Kenya, where are you at? Come up here, sweetheart. Come here, Kenya. Um, come right here and sit next to me real quick. And we're going to sit here, and you're going to stay seated because I want you to be able to see Kenya. So today, you can actually stand up right next to me. Today is a very special day because today, Kenya is here in church at North Central on her eighth birthday. Oh yeah, she's eight, she's eight. So anybody that comes to church, has to come hear me speak, uh, deserves a massive round of happy birthday from the whole university. So let's sing happy birthday to Kenya. Can we do that, ready? Happy birthday. Tell everybody, tell everybody who your mom is. Desiree. That's Desiree. So, Dr. Leibengood, who is our Associate Vice President of Academics here at North Central, this is her precious little angel here. So, we're, we love your mom. Dr. Leibengood is what we call her, and she's outstanding. She's great at her job here at the school, so we love you. Okay, Kenya, you can have your seat. Let's give her a big hand. Good stuff. Great stuff, great stuff. Again, it's been our joy to prepare the room, to prepare the table for you here as a university. Uh, these are complex times, but we just try to keep it very simple. Uh, stay in that lane where Jesus has taught us how to love, how to prepare the room, and uh, you're just gonna hopefully feel that. And parents, grandparents, I pray as you drive away today, I dropped my daughter off here in 2003. 2003. Um, and we were living in Michigan and I cried all the way to Chicago. Uh, she was our first one off to college. And, but it got to me. It got to me. Uh, I think I was crying by the time I got to the corner out here. Um, and it's okay. Those are, those are good tears. Remember when the Apostle Paul uh, was leaving after his third missionary journey, 
Uh, he was on the beaches of Ephesus. There had been a prophecy that he would be taken to Jerusalem and be bound. Um, he was leaving uh, there, and they knew that they wouldn't see him again. That's not the case here. You're going to see them again. Just remember that whatever we hold, whatever we hold, oh, you're, you'll hear from them again shortly. They need money. And so anyway, the, uh, whatever you hold, whatever you hold in your fist dies. Whatever you hold with an open hand, it leaves, but it always returns alive. So you've got to have this hold me while you let me go posture with these wonderful young adults that are here. We are going to, Lord willing, uh, do our part to hone their talent, skills, and discoveries, their spiritual passion for Christ, and give them the knowledge that they will compete in this world uh, at the highest level. Um, but we're going to return them to you uh, with momentum. And that's our prayer is that you graduate with momentum. It will not take them four years to recover from the four years they just spent at college. So many universities are producing students who need a massive amount of recovery from the time they just spent. That is not North Central University. Uh, they will be equipped if their heart stays open, if they keep burying the buffalo and don't throw down the shovel and quit. Um, they will develop a momentum that will be uh, measurable. Doesn't mean they're going to be famous and rich. It means that they will have the skill set to be faithful to the Lord and live a life that is well-pleasing. And they're going to water the earth because most, most of the most important people doing the most important things for God are still totally unknown to us. We do know that, right? Um, so we want to just uh, be good stewards with your treasures that you have entrusted to us. Um, but the fact that you are crying both ways, you know, I dropped off some of my kids and they were crying too, realized that they actually had to feed themselves now and uh, <laughs> iron something, I don't know. Um, uh, you know, for me, ironing was going into the hamper and pulling something out and, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't iron much and so I had to learn, learn those skill sets. But the fact that there's emotion proves that the relationship is legitimate. The fact that it hurts a little bit, that there's a tearing, proves that you were effective and that the relationship is living and real. Don't ever interpret those emotions as some type of warning sign that danger is coming or that this was a bad decision. The emotions actually indicate how successful you have been as a family because you got several other uh, cry points that are going to be coming in the years ahead. Um, but anyway, maybe some parents won't, won't cry. They're going to head straight for ice cream when this is done. I don't know. Say, hey, finally, we're excited about this day. So anyway, it's a good day. It's a good day. Uh, enjoy it well. Let's go to the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John. I want to draw your attention to a, a famous scene, and I want to slow the scene down for just a few moments. And I want to deal with the topic of intimacy this morning. Uh, spiritual intimacy. And I want to talk about this in terms, you're about to start this educational journey. It's going to be demanding. And intimacy with the Lord somehow gets lost in the educational experience because of the speed and the examination of our life, because you're welcoming people to look closely at your life, believing that out of the examination of your life and the work of your hands and your intellect and your rigor and your study life, 
that the close examination of your life is going to produce knowledge about yourself that will be usable. Now you know how to focus your growth points because somebody's actually looking closely at your life outside your family. Uh, all these wonderful strangers that's, that's here. Uh, we get a chance now to examine your life. Uh, not to, to judge you in a sense of rejection or being unworthy, but to be able to examine you so that we can spot the gold and also spot the dross that needs to kind of be scraped away from your life so that that reflection of Christ and you reach the full potential of who you are. Um, I speak a lot on leadership. I love leadership. My PhD is in leadership from Gonzaga University. However, we are not in a leadership crisis in the United States. We are in a theological crisis in the United States. Uh, we have an absence of truth-telling in America, not an absence of innovation and creativity. We have more creativity going on than we know what to do with. What we have an absence of is people committed to truth-telling. I, I tell uh, parents all the time and students, I hope you appreciate this. Most universities that are liberal arts have um, you know, your liberal arts topics of literature and mathematics and science and all the wonderful uh, studies uh, that matter to a civil growing society. We do all those studies. Christian universities oftentimes then at the end, if I was developing a flow chart, I'd have a, a block that had science and next to it a block that said mathematics and a block that said literature and a block that said, um, um, you know, social, whatever we're studying. And there is these wonderful, wonderful disciplines of knowledge. And then they put scripture at the end of that alongside of those studies and they call it a Christian university. That is not what North Central does. North Central doesn't place the scripture alongside the academic disciplines. We take the scripture and it moves above the curriculum. And so the curriculum at this university, no matter what it is, sits under the authority of scripture. And so we interpret curriculum through the final authority of scripture, friends. And the best way I describe it is this way. Like Daniel, we are learning uh, the language of the Babylonians. We are learning the language of the Chaldeans. We are learning the language of, 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 um, of things that are true in this world, but we are not learning the language of the Babylonians so that it can culminate in the idolatry of Babylon. The idolatry of Babylon is different than the languages of Babylon. So we're learning great disciplines. And I, the more I study science, the more I believe in God, not the less I believe in God. The more I study biology, the more I believe the Bible, friends, not the less I believe in the Bible. Because God is the, is the maker and the, the one whose handiwork is all of these truths and knowledge that we have before us. So we keep the scripture above the curriculum. Friends, not just simply alongside it, just so we can tag it on and claim to be a Christian university. We take it serious here. Our faculty is phenomenal. If you're studying English, literature, mathematics, whatever it is, I promise you in that room, in that room is someone who loves the Lord and trusts in the scripture of God, as well as uh, knowing uh, the insights into this particular field that has captured your imagination and interest. Um, so I just wanted to, the parents to kind of hear that heart. Um, but I, I get to talk on leadership, and you're going to hear me say three things probably a thousand times. I share this whether I'm in churches or I share this whether I'm sitting in any kind of leadership forum. There's three fundamental things about leadership that I just want to start to plant in the heart of every student here. Number one is this. 
Nobody's success is going to rob your potential. Nobody's success is robbing your potential. It's very difficult for a young emerging leader to get thrilled and excited about somebody else's success because they feel jealousy. Because everybody's vying for that starting line to leave on that big run. And they're afraid and insecure that somebody's going to arrive there before them. So they withhold their jubilation that somebody else is really finding their rhythm in life early. Um, because if I, if I help you, if I introduce you to people that will make you successful, if I rejoice too much, somehow I'll get left out of the equation. But that's not how a Christian approaches success. We don't operate from a place of scarcity. We operate from a place of abundance, friends. Nobody's success is robbing your potential. I give this little silly illustration. Imagine two little boats are in the harbor, two little sailboats are in the Boston Harbor or the San Francisco Harbor. One little sailboat just bobbing up and down, going nowhere. The other sailboat is going full speed and blows past the little boat that's bobbing up and down. Imagine the little boat that's going nowhere, yelling at the other boat, hey, stop stealing my wind. That other boat would say, get your sail up, dummy. There's plenty of wind in the harbor to sail more than one ship. And when the Lord began the church on the day of Pentecost, we think about the fire, but we forget about the wind. There's enough wind in God's kingdom to flourish every dream, every heart, every promise, every hope, every life in this room. Nobody's success is robbing your potential. So be happy for people. I have four kids. None of them got married on the same day. None of them all had kids on the same day. Everybody's arriving a little bit sooner or there's somebody that's yet to arrive when you arrive. We're all kind of staggered in this thing, growing and going. So don't, don't become jealous along the way of somebody else's relationships. Well, how did the president, one time this kid, how, how did you know the president? How, how, you're hanging out with the president. They were all upset about it. Well, that kid was from my church in Sacramento. I knew him when they were a little kid. So, but they were misinterpreting that and let some jealousy get in their heart. Don't jump ahead like that. So don't be jealous of your friends along the way because everybody's going to develop and get their doors a little bit different. So nobody's success is robbing your potential. The second thing I tell leaders is, if you think for too long about a missed opportunity, chances are you'll miss the next one too. One of the most important things to do in life is to lift up your head. It's so fundamental that Abram was told by God, look up. Abram had failed greatly on the most fundamental ask of God. Don't bring your relatives. And so he brought his nephew. He did 99% of what the Lord said, but he had this compromise in his life. And so what happened when <coughs> he brought Lot, you see right there in the opening chapter, there in chapter 12 and 13 of the great launch of Abram's life of faith, you see that there's quarrels among the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abram. And thank the Lord for quarrels, friends. Thank the Lord for frustration. Frustration is the front edge of the Doppler map that shows the rain coming. You can see the green cloud coming. Frustration in life is God's early warning sign that something's out of alignment. It's a way to alert us that if you don't pay attention to something that's out of whack, that judgment and 
severe correction because we listen to our conscience, and if we don't listen to our conscience and we are given the chance to listen to counsel, if we don't listen to counsel, uh, then we, are, then we are <coughs> have to be subjected to correction. And if we don't listen to correction, then all that's left is calamity to get your attention. So what happens is in Abram's life, there were these quarrels. He said, something's wrong. He realized he brought Lot with him, and the Lord said, don't bring your relatives. He brought a relative. So they separated. Abram thought from that point forward, his life was marginalized from that point forward, meaning that the Lord gave him this great vision for his life, but in chapter one, he screwed up. And then he said, okay, Lot, you go left, I'll go right, you go right, I'll go left. Which means basically for the rest of my life, I get to be half of what I could have been. Think about that. I made a mistake early in my life, now I get to be half of what I could have been. I either get left or I get right. And the Bible says that once they separated, the Lord told Abram, look up, because he had his head down. It's very easy to keep your head down when you make a mistake. Lord said, look up. He looked up and the Lord said, from that spot there, look north, south, east, and west. I'm giving it all to you. Five seconds ago, when you had your head down, you thought your whole life was left or right. You only get to be half of what you could have been. I'm giving you north, south, east, and west, not left or right. But he had to look up. If you think about a missed opportunity for too long, chances are you're going to miss the next one too. I, you know, many of you are, have been driving in the last couple of years. Uh, people my age, we've all totaled cars before, right? Anybody ever totaled their car? You weren't totaled, but the car got totaled. So they call you up and they tell you to go down to Joe's wrecking yard to your car and you go behind the chain link fence and there's your mashed car. It's sad, but there's your car. It's munched. It's irreparable. Why are you there? They let you into the car to do one thing. You walk up to the car and you reach inside the car and you take out your valuables. But you, you leave the wreck behind. You don't tie the wreck to your ankle and drag it around for the rest of your life. The way the Lord works in our life through failure and, and disappointment is we reach inside the wreckage, we pull out the wisdom, but we leave the wreckage behind. You got to look up because if you think for too long about a missed opportunity, chances are you're going to miss the next one too. And just the last thing I tell leaders, if I'm building a leader from scratch, is this mindset, whatever fills, spills. Whatever fills, spills. Whatever has filled your heart, whatever you're filling your heart with, you cannot contain it. If it's sorrow and despair, negativity, if it's full of uh, vain imagination, whatever Bible phrase you want to put around it, if it's filling your heart with the things of this earth, in times of when the world needs you most, it bumps up against you and whatever fills, spills. So fill your heart with the things of the kingdom. Fill your heart with thoughts of God's goodness, even though we are closing the gap between who we are currently and the potential for who we can become, friends. You're not closing the gap between you and me. I'm not closing the gap between me and you. Whenever I compare myself to you, I lose my way. 
I have to compare and close the gap between who I am currently and the potential for who I can become, friends. So I'm looking inside. I'm filling my heart with the God things and the good things because whatever fills, spills. Let's go to John 13 just for a few moments here. I just want to bring your mind to a certain verse before we pray. And then I think we have a little bit of time for moms and dads to say goodbye. So here we go. John chapter 13. Jesus is about to say goodbye. So I, maybe it's the right chapter here. Uh, um, uh, your parents are about to be, you know, uh, take it up. Here we go. Uh, let's go to John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, that's always a startling phrase to me. How does the devil put something in your heart? How does the devil put something in your heart? He dropped a, a seed, a thought, a possibility, an ambition into Judas's heart that was very individualistic, breaking free from community and moving out in a state of total independence and self-will. The thought crossed his mind. The devil put it in his heart to betray him. And remember, three kinds of activities are happening here. You have the, the denial, you know, Peter denied, Thomas doubted, and Judas betrayed. There was doubt, there was denial, and there was betrayal happening in Jesus' culminating hour, the hour of his departure. He's really gathered his disciples around his deathbed, you could say, to communicate. He would not be able to communicate from the cross. He made just six basic one-line statements over, or seven of them over those six hours on the cross. Here he is in a very focused transfer of knowledge and information and revelation to his disciples about life from this moment on. He's about to introduce the most potent language about the Holy Spirit given in Scripture. Jesus introduced the Holy Spirit to us through Scripture, uh, himself, and then also through some other uh, statements by John the Baptist uh, when he said, there comes one after me who will baptize you with fire. So when the, the Jewish person heard this, fire was a refining term. So it wasn't a provocative term. They understood baptism, and they understood fire as a refining tool. So this one is coming who will immerse you and identify you and mark you through baptism uh, with refinement, this fire. They didn't fully understand what the fire of heaven was ultimately going to mean because the day of Pentecost had not yet come when that was penned in Mark chapter 16. Uh, Jesus gave a provocative statement about in the last days that people would speak with new tongues that the Great Commission would be marked by this authority over serpents and would be marked by this ability to speak with new tongues. I mean, imagine the disciples hearing this before Pentecost, new tongues. I would venture to say that it was a somewhat provocative term, but it also was new languages, a new relevance, an ability to speak to this world. So that's probably the most provocative of all statements prior to Pentecost. When you get to the Last Supper, Jesus began to identify the Holy Spirit as a comforter is coming, a guide is coming, a helper is coming. So these terms are very invitational. When Jesus told the disciples to go wait in Jerusalem for power to clothe them, 
They were waiting for this thing that had been described as help, as strength, as comfort, as refinement, as relevancy. They went into that prayer meeting not knowing fully what the day of Pentecost would mean or understanding the reaction of the world to what Jesus was saying. I mean, who reacts to comfort or to help or to strength? Who reacts to refinement or to relevancy? Nobody. But when they were there on the day of Pentecost and the world beheld that visitation of heaven on the day of Pentecost, when that 120 were suddenly captured in this, after a handful of days of seeking the Lord, a little bit of church business took place, but then on that day of Pentecost, when it had fully come on that 50th day since Passover, all of a sudden thunder hit the city. Fire came down physically and rested like a small raging campfire. A cloven tongue of fire was resting over everybody's head. And this was seen by the pagans because they made fun of it. And they heard them speaking strange languages. Meaning that they were hearing them speaking languages that they understood from different dialects. And they said, this is impossible. They didn't take, you know, what's that language course you can take and learn a new language in three days? That's, they had, so they're learning languages of other nations and hearing the praise of God and the kingdom of God declared in foreign language to them. They know you don't speak this language. How are you doing this? So they assigned it to drunkenness. Jesus never said, hey, come in this room and people are going to think you're drunk as a skunk and you're going to think you're a lunatic. Who goes into that prayer meeting? But if I'm trying to understand what it means to be comforted in my trauma, guided in my misdirection, and strengthened in my inability, if I'm seeking to be refined and more godly, if I am seeking to be fitted to my times with a language for the ages and eternity, this new tongues, I'm going into that prayer meeting. And I tell people, when you come to North Central, you're going to receive strength for the journey, comfort for the traumas of yesterday and the persecutions of tomorrow, the trials of tomorrow. You're going to receive guidance in a chaotic world that is throwing at you every day something new to love. It's hard to live whole when you have to choose something every day that's new that you must love. How do I, how do I walk in guidance, Lord, to love the things that are eternal and matter most? Lord, how do I become more like you? And how do I activate my gifts and talents to be fitted to this world with the language for the Great Commission. That's what Pentecost was really all about. It was not about weirdness in crazy people. It's about those things. And so Jesus is trying to explain it to the disciples. This denial and this uh, is about to happen yet with Peter. It's foretold. The doubt of Thomas is about to be revealed and the betrayal of Judas commences. So real quickly, the scripture says, and our musicians, if there's a piano player that can come join me up here um, from the team, there you come. I always tell young preachers, 
no matter how you're doing when you're preaching, just tell, ask for the musicians to come to the stage and people will feel hope. There's a natural hope that comes right here. Like, oh, okay, good, this thing's almost done. Shoo, I see some activity up there. It's coming to a close. Just call for the musicians, everybody will come back with you right at that point in time. Because they want to hear the word, you're free to go. So this idea of intimacy, Jesus is preparing the disciples to continue in the intimacy. John, I was talking with my great friend, Dr. Tennyson this morning. We always go back and forth when I'm preaching. And I said to Alan, I go, this idea of, of John leaning on the breast of Jesus, is this merely the Persian posture for how people ate and reclined, felt supported and relaxed and ate, so they would lean on the left arm of the person next to them on this a series of pillows or a couch and everybody kind of leaned this way like a recliner but they're using their neighbors as a recliner. John it says was next to Jesus. Dr. Tennyson provided a great because my question was John <clears throat> seemed to receive um, things or notice things that the other gospel writers did not notice. When you study the Gospels, they have three of them. They're called synoptics. It's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then John kind of stands alone because of the unique nature of the content. I know chapter and verses came much later, but when chapter and verses were added to help us organize and understand the Bible, every chapter in John contains something that's not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Every single chapter has something unique to John. I said, Alan, is, is this idea of John leaning against the breast or the bosom of Jesus. As my great friend Jonathan Gainsborough would often say, he could feel the heartbeat of Jesus from that posture. Was that an intentional moment of intimacy or was that just normal Persian custom and he just happened to find himself? And Dr. Tennyson pointed out something that John being the youngest of the disciples and the host that Jesus' siblings, obviously he was born first, <laughs> born of a virgin, uh, but his siblings that came after him did not believe until after his death and resurrection. This is one of the most incredible things imaginable. James did not believe until after Jesus. So the entire ministry of Jesus, his family didn't believe. So maybe John, being the youngest of the disciples and Jesus being the oldest of his siblings, maybe they found a connection like a younger brother. I don't know, but I think it's fascinating. John is leaning on Jesus, but we do have an indication he had a special grace recognized by the other disciples because when Jesus mentioned that there would be a betrayer through this riddle that they were trying to unpack, Peter asked John to ask Jesus. Now, they were all close enough that they could hear table conversation, but the fact that Peter asked John to ask Jesus, who's he talking about? Is he talking about me? Indicates that there was a closeness and intimacy between John and Jesus. I want to encourage all of us in this room Moms and dads, grandparents, aunts and uncles, as you drive away today, let this entire 
um, unfolding chapter of life, be a catalyst for your own spiritual renewal and closeness to the Lord. This wonderful life that's in front of these freshmen, you just have no idea the, what's in the hand of God that you've yet to see. When I sat as a new freshman, I didn't know Karen existed on the planet. I didn't know Jocelyn, Tyler, Kramer, and Spencer, our kids existed. I didn't know our 11 grandkids existed. All that was in God's hand. I didn't know I was going to be a youth pastor at this church in San Jose. I didn't know I was going to plant a Harvest Church. I didn't know I'd be in Grand Rapids. I didn't know I would oversee church planning and be a part of this magnificent church called Real Life Church in Sacramento. And I certainly didn't know I was coming to North Central University to be the president. I saw none of that on this day in my life. But I'll never forget my roommate, Mark Powers, I met my first day. We ended up being roommates. My roommate moved out the first semester and then Mark moved in because we became friends. And he was the first person I ever saw in my life that when I'd have to get up in the morning, I had a class at eight o'clock. So that alarm went off at 7.55. And so that... uh, (laughs) gave me a good how many know what I'm talking about that 755 alarm for the 8 o'clock class I pulled it off with the help of a baseball hat you know gone Um, but when the alarm would go off seriously every day dark outside we had a little humble desk the rooms weren't as nice as they are today trust me a lot more rules and a lot less uh, furniture. It just, it just was a different era. But we had this little lamp over by this desk, and every day I would lay on the top bunk of these, these janky little bunk beds that they had that squeaked. I mean, you didn't have to do nothing. Just your heart beating made the thing squeak. It was just like, <laughs> oh, you'd turn over. <laughs> Lights on. I saw Mark sitting at his desk. He's 18, he's a freshman, straight out of high school. And I saw his Bible open. And I lay there open my eyes. He's sitting there reading his Bible. Day after day after day after day. I never have a memory of waking up in school and not seeing my roommate Mark Powers reading his Bible in the morning on his own. I'd never seen anybody do that in my life. Anybody that was that committed. Because we had Bible class after Bible class going on. He ended up being a great missionary. But apart from that, he was becoming intimate with the Lord. I saw something that he had that I did not have. I was sitting on the other side of the table. I wasn't leaning like John on the bosom of Christ. So I'm telling you, even in a demanding academic life, he can get up spend time, talk with, however it fits for you, putting Jesus. Maybe you're a late night person, maybe you're a morning person. I don't know. But whatever that space is that you are intimate with Christ, apart from your educational demand. And I end with this. I'll tell the super fast because it's 11 o'clock and we got to be done here. Um, 2002, this study came out of Australia that was, I thought, fascinating beyond words. They found out that when a newborn baby is ill, 
or has a little bacteria or cold that's nursing, the baby's nursing, and has a little virus, that the mother's body re-engineers her breast milk to produce millions of new white cells, leukocyte cells, to put into the breast milk, to put into the baby to fight the virus. This is unbelievable. How on earth with a mother's body know that the baby is sick. So they did an experiment and they took milk that was pumped from the mother's breast and put it in a bottle, healthy milk. And then they measured the milk that was taken directly uh, from the mother who was nursing the baby. And they found out that the breast milk was entirely different. How could this be? Both babies were ill. So they were fascinated as to how this could happen. They would, the babies that were drinking the pumped milk from the mother's breast, the milk was wonderful, and the baby did get better, but it took longer. They would drink the milk through a bottle, pumped from the mother. But the baby that was nursing had a different kind of experience in which the milk had been transformed with this inordinate burst of leukocytes. And they were trying to figure out how the mother's body knew this. And they discovered that when the infant was nursing, that that sickness, that virus, was passed through the contact of nursing, that the saliva of the baby entered the mother's body when it would nurse. The mother's body would read the virus in the child's saliva and activate a re-engineering of the amount of white blood cells produced by the mother in the mother's body and then feed that new recipe back into the baby's body. And that child recovered with great speed. What's your point, President? Pretty simple point here. Here it is. I can preach the Word of God, and the Word of God is powerful. I can deliver it to you. I can pump the Word of God into a bottle and feed you like this. And over time, it can heal. But have you ever seen two people read the Bible? And for this person right here, it, there's speed. It just seems to counteract if there's a lie about my childhood, about a lie about my future. I read the Bible, man, the truth of the Bible. It just defeats the devil's lie fast. Other people struggle with the lie. They're sitting in church. They're hearing great messages. Over time, those messages have an impact. But this other person has a relationship with the Lord that is intimate. And when you're intimate with the Lord, there's something about your tears out of that intimate connection with Jesus, that, that pain and sorrow, it enters into your relationship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit takes the scripture and engineers it in a way through intimacy that brings a swift, powerful counteraction to the enemy in your life. I don't want to be more committed to the Lord. I've stopped using that language. I want to be more intimate with the Lord. If I'm intimate with the Lord, 
and I have a direct relationship with Jesus, it's like a nursing baby. And the sorrows and the pains and the lies that are plaguing my heart seem to go to the throne. I, can't, I don't know how to explain it. And the Bible does something when I read it back that is so powerful and quick to counteract because I'm intimate with the Lord. I'm not simply receiving truth from other people that's powerful and it works. But there's something about intimacy that's different than commitment. So whatever that looks like for you, I pray as we start this year, somewhere put into your spiritual vocabulary, Lord, I want to walk intimately with you this year, Jesus. That roommate that President Hagen had, Mark Powers, Lord, help me to be a blessing to the world around me, not a show-off. He has no idea the impact he was having in that moment on my life. But this year is going to be a tremendous year. Just pursue it with a sense of intimacy with God. Okay, I already, chapel went long. I blew it. Let's all stand together, friends. Uh, um, anyway, how many are glad you came to the house of the Lord today on Sunday morning? Good stuff. We want to give everybody, I know there's going to be some different lunches and some goodbyes going on. Um, can we um, just, if you're kind of standing around your family, your mom or dad, I don't want to put you in an awkward situation. I, I hated it when I was young in the 70s. This guy wrote this song, I love you with the love of the Lord. And they would make us get in somebody's face and look at him in the eye and sing, I love you with the love of the Lord. It's like, oh my gosh, more people left Christianity over that. <laughs> So I'm not going to make you look at your dad and the mom in the eye and sing, I love you with the love of the Lord. I know you do do that. But could we, if you're near your family, just take their hand or maybe even if you got to move over by your parent or maybe you're not here with a parent, it's okay, mom and dad. But if you're near your family, whatever is your family familiarity and custom, maybe just put a hand on a shoulder, join a hands, whatever you would like to do. I just want us to pray together on this Sunday morning. And I already have a vision four years down the road. We're all going to be together at graduation, taking pictures. Uh, I've been here six years. Now I know what it's like to have a freshman graduate. It's an awesome experience to go from this service to that moment on the, on the platform of that degree. It's so powerful. Please don't throw down the shovel and walk away before you get a chance to finish the job. May God's grace be with you. Father, we just ask right now, Lord, that, Lord, this would be a powerful uplift for every family and household, Lord, for grandparents, aunties, uncles, Lord. Lord, for the siblings, Lord Jesus, that are saying goodbye to their older brother or sister, Lord, in college, and really seeing a glimpse of their own future in many ways. Father, just let this be a profound moment for our students, Lord, and our families, Lord. And comforter, helper, the one who is here to guide us into all truth, the one who's here to refine my life to be more like Christ, the one who's here to give me the language of eternity fitted to my uh, uh, culture and nations, Lord. I pray, God, that you would just outpour your work, Holy Spirit, in every man and woman's life, God. 
Lord, we pray protection, health, strength. Just surround this campus with guardian angels, God. The hedge of grace around North Central in the heart of this great city and the world, Lord. Father, we pray that this would be an unprecedented year of revival. And Lord, that the results of these students' lives, God, would just lift this, the lift from neighborhoods to nations, God. Your kingdom, Lord. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name. Bethany, would you come and give some instruction? God bless everybody. Thanks for coming this morning.